millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi, I'm Kathy with a C. And I'm Kathy with a K. And this is Killer Destinations. Today's destination is Wolf Lodge, Idaho. Wolf Lodge is a small area in Kootenai County located in Idaho's Panhandle. It is categorized as a populated place according to the U.S. Board on Geographic Names, which simply means there is at least one human inhabitant. The closest incorporated town is Fernan Lake Village, population 169, which is almost 10 miles away, and Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, with population of 50,000, is about 11 miles to the east. The area contains Wolf Lodge Inn, which lies at the beginning of the canyon, just east of where the clear water of Lake Coeur d'Alene becomes Wolf Lodge Bay. The route itself is wrapped in history. The modern interstate, which is Interstate 90, roughly follows the path of Mullen Road, the first engineered road that connected the Great Plains with the Northwest. In 2005, it was this interstate that provided a clean escape when a serial killer came looking for new victims. Before we start, <laughs> as those of you who follow us on Instagram know, at Killer Destinations Podcast, Kathy and I were both on vacation last week, and unfortunately, I came back with a bit of a cold and laryngitis. So we're going to power through today, but hopefully by next week, we won't be doing podcasts that sound like this. See, your vacation was too far and too much fun. <laughs> <laughs> I stayed close to home. <laughs> exactly. That's very true. The Groney family lived in the Wolf Lodge area of Idaho, and they were of modest means, but they lived on a beautiful piece of land, with the closest neighbor being well up the road. 40-year-old Brenda Groney and her boyfriend, 37-year-old Mark McKenzie, were raising Brenda's three youngest children, two boys, 13-year-old Slade and 9-year-old Dylan, and one girl, 8-year-old Shasta. Brenda's ex-husband and the children's father, Steve Groney, shared custody of these three children, but he was raising their two oldest boys, Jesse and Vance. The children spent their time looking for crawdads, hunting, fishing, camping, and generally enjoying the rugged and beautiful country surrounding their home. They often left their doors unlocked at night, feeling safe in their community and protected by their pit bull. On Sunday, May 15, 2005, the family had a barbecue with a few friends and neighbors. It was the last day the Groney family would enjoy each other's company. According to journalist Taryn Broadwater with The Spokesman Review, Neighbor Bob Hollingsworth went to the Groney home the day after the barbecue to discuss paying Shasta's older brother, Slade, for mowing his lawn. Mr. Hollingsworth found blood on the porch and immediately called the police. Kootenai County Sheriff's investigator Brad Maskell was at home when he received a call at 7.20 p.m. on May 16, 2005, from deputies who were out on patrol. 
The deputies informed Investigator Maskell that they entered the Groney's Wolf Lodge home through a back door and found the body of 13-year-old Slade face down in a pool of blood inside the kitchen next to his mother, Brenda. The body of Brenda's boyfriend, Mark McKenzie, was found in the living room. According to an article in the Spokesman Review by Becky Kramer, investigators initially believed that the three had been shot in the head, but later determined they had been bludgeoned to death by a hammer. Zip ties and duct tape had been used to restrain them. By 11.15 that night, investigator Maskell was asking a judge to sign warrants for a detailed search of the house, the property, and a Ford pickup truck found on the neighbor's property. The truck had wadded up duct tape that had been tossed on the seat. Investigator Maskell told Judge Scott Wayman that the search would include looking for additional bodies as two young children, nine-year-old Dylan and his eight-year-old sister Shasta, were nowhere to be seen. According to an Associated Press article dated May 22, 2005, investigators and forensic experts spent four days inside the blood-spattered home where the bodies were found. The Kootenai County Sheriff's Department was joined by the Idaho State Police and the FBI. No DNA, fingerprints, or blood evidence connecting any perpetrators was found in the home or the Wolf Lodge area. When it was discovered that Dylan and Shasta were last seen on Sunday at the barbecue, law enforcement officers interviewed everyone who was present. Originally, a concrete worker who attended the barbecue was a person of interest, as was the children's father, Steve Groney. The concrete worker passed a lie detector test, and after a seven-hour interrogation by the FBI, he was cleared. Reports conflict on how long Steve Groney was a person of interest, but he was eventually eliminated as a suspect. A nationwide Amber Alert was issued one day after the bodies were found. Two days later, more than 200 volunteers walked side-by-side across 400 acres of heavy brush and forest near the Wolf Lodge home. Divers were also used to search nearby ponds and streams. A tip line was set up through the Kootenai County Sheriff's Department and more than 40 detectives from various law enforcement agencies followed leads. The children's father, Steve Groney, made several television appearances to plead for his children's return. Billboards with their faces were placed throughout the country, especially in the surrounding states. Kath, do you remember when this happened? I don't. So I think it's because I was living in Lake Tahoe at the time, so it was a lot closer than Southern California is. Right. But I remember this. This was something where I think the surrounding states were much more aware of it, too, because if somebody was going to flee Idaho, they would do a Montana, they would do a Nevada, something like that. But they had billboards all over Reno, all over Lake Tahoe, Carson City, like all of northern Nevada had billboards about this, too. Wow. Yeah, I don't remember this at all. By week three, over 1,500 tips had come in. Local officers and FBI agents interviewed over 400 people. Sheriff's Captain Ben Wolfinger was quoted as saying he hadn't closed any doors on any angle. Now, Kath, that statement was actually made in response to speculation. So some people suspected it was a motorcycle gang. Some people suspected drug dealers. Some people suspected a random stranger. And so basically this captain was like, I am keeping all options open. 
Captain Wolfinger also pointed out that officers had logged more than 1,600 hours of overtime in the largest criminal case in the department's history. Bob Wright, who was a spokesman for the FBI's office in Salt Lake City, indicated that they had devoted nearly 85 agents to the search. For the Kootenai County Sheriff's Office, I can't even imagine they had very many officers to begin with. So I'm sure they were all working overtime and double time and what have you to, oh, totally. to help. Exactly. Kootenai County Sheriff's Detective Brad Maskell, who was now the lead investigator in the case, even enlisted the services of psychic detective Noreen Renier, who had worked on more than 450 cases in her 30-year career as a psychic detective. And Kathy, I looked into this, and it's amazing the number of cases that she consulted on. Investigator Maskell was quoted as saying, I was willing to try just about anything in an effort to rescue those two kids. This case was the first where I actually participated in a psychic session. It was interesting. It was obviously unusual. The session was conducted over the phone as Noreen Renier lives on the East Coast. She was mailed toys belonging to both children, but because the toys were from their father's home and not the rural home where the murders occurred, Ms. Renier said she was limited in seeing what had taken place at the murder scenes. She did see a wooded area where she believed the two children were being held. Which, of course, there were wooded areas all over the place. Yeah, I'm not sure that was a big stretch for uh, northern Idaho. Exactly. In a June 5, 2005 Associated Press article that ran in the South Idaho Press, family members of Steve Gronies said that they believed police were doing everything they could, but no clues to the children's whereabouts presented themselves. One of the things that made the search difficult was that although there was no immediate neighbor to the Grony property, the home was only a quarter mile from an off-ramp to Interstate 90. This means the perpetrators had easy access to Washington State, which was about 30 miles away, Montana, which was about 50 miles away, and the Canadian border, which was about 100 miles away. The perpetrator had a massive head start. Family members still clung to the hope that the kids got away and were hiding. Steve Groney offered his motorcycle, valued at $25,000, as part of the reward. The reward fund also included $100,000 from the FBI and $7,500 that had been donated by local residents. Six weeks later, at 2 a.m. on July 2, 2005, the mystery behind the disappearance of the two children came to an end. At that time, a man and a young girl walked into a Denny's restaurant in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho. That little girl was Shasta Groney. In the restaurant was 21-year-old Nick Chapman and his 18-year-old friend Chris Donlin, who were having coffee with their girlfriends. Now, Kath, I listened to an episode of Criminal Perspective podcast on this, and Shasta was interviewed, and she said that when she walked into the restaurant, Nick Chapman looked up at her and they met eyes, and he nodded ever so slightly, and she nodded back. Wow. Yes. So she said she knew that he knew who she was. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Oh, that totally gave me chills. I know. So she goes to sit down, and the man she's with sits with his back to the patrons in the restaurant. No situational awareness. Yeah, no situational awareness, but there weren't many patrons to speak of. So Shasta says that she sees Nick talking to the waitress. 
So she now knows there is awareness of her situation. It turns out Nick Chapman and Chris Donlan took down the license plate on the truck that she was in. So what happens is she and her abductor order onion rings, cheese sticks, and chicken fingers. Once the waitress realizes, like, oh, wow, this could be Shasta, the little girl orders a milkshake. And so they basically made the milkshake really slow. They tried. They, like, went and got the cow to get the milk from. Exactly. <laughs> they wanted to prolong the process as much as possible. Wow, good for them. And the waitress, whose name was Amber Dean, told her manager that this was possibly Shasta Groney. The manager's name was Linda Olson. And so as the slowest milkshake in America is being made, <laughs> Linda Olson makes a 911 call. I've got a little girl here with a tall gentleman, and she looks so much like this. Uh, Shasta, okay, are they still in the building? And we're not sure. You know, I just, she looks so much like her, and I just, I don't know. All right, we'll have to go that way. So that was the 911 recording made by Linda Olson that was played on a January 9, 2019 episode of Crime Watch Daily. So shortly after the 911 call is made, a sheriff's deputy arrives, goes up to the table, and says to the little girl, what's your name? She then looks at her abductor, sort of looking for permission, and he nods his head, essentially giving her permission, and she tells the deputy her name is Shasta. The man is then arrested, and the patrons of the restaurant erupted in applause. I can't even imagine. It's interesting because the waitress, Amber Dean, got a lot of credit, and she did a lot of interviews. And when Shasta was interviewed as an adult 10 years later, she was still in touch with Nick Chapman. Wow. Yes. She was friends with him. We'll talk about a bonding moment. Oh, yeah. And she credited him with being the impetus behind her rescue. And he was. I mean, you don't know that the waitress wouldn't have recognized her as well, obviously, because she hadn't been to the booth yet or what have you. But this was a man who... He just knew. And looking at her knew how to signal her without setting her abductor off. Right. Like the slightest nod of his head. Right. According to Shasta's perspective, he was the one who alerted the waitress. The waitress was saying in subsequent interviews that she knew immediately was Shasta. Nick Chapman and his buddy, Chris, also call 911. I couldn't find any recording of that 911 call. I looked as well and I couldn't find something. So what we do know is that the waitress and the manager split $4,315 in reward money because they called 911 first, so they were credited with... Assisting with the capture. Exactly. But the beautiful thing is that the FBI's $100,000 was split between the four of them. That's awesome. Yeah. So as an adult, Shasta, looking back, basically said, I'm glad Nick and his friend Chris got some cut. And probably because they were younger, they perhaps did not get as much attention as the waitress and the manager. That's my guess. As the kidnapper was being arrested, the waitress comforted the little girl who was reunited with her father and taken to the Kootenai Medical Center for evaluation and treatment. So as a result of the vigilance of Nick, Chris, Amber, and Linda, Joseph Edward Duncan III was arrested. The press reported that Duncan was a registered sex offender living in Fargo, North Dakota, and had moved there in 2000 after being released from prison in Washington state. So, Kath, what we come to find out is that Duncan 
was convicted in 1980 of raping a 14-year-old boy at gunpoint. At the time, he was just shy of 17 years old. He spent 14 years in prison for that crime. And I do not know if he was tried as an adult, but it seems to me he probably was because he spent so much time in prison. Right, by the sentencing, I would assume. I'm assuming too. And the fact that it was public information. So in 2005, at the time of the Grony crimes, Duncan was 42 years old. He was facing charges in Minnesota for failing to register as a high-risk sex offender and for molesting a six-year-old boy. A Fargo businessman wrote Duncan a personal check for $15,000 to help him make bail in Minnesota. A couple of weeks after posting bail, so April of 2005, Duncan disappeared. He had been ordered to stay in touch with a Minnesota probation agent, and a warrant was issued after he failed to do so. He had been released on bail just a few weeks prior to the Grony family murders and Dylan and Shasta's kidnapping. So again, there's a warrant out for his arrest at the time he kidnaps these kids. And what I read was that when he moved to Fargo in 2000, he actually did register as a sex offender and over 300 people showed up at a community meeting because they found out a sex registrant was going to be living among them. It's funny, in a small town, you can bring out 300 people, but in a town of a few million, nobody is that involved in their community for them to come out. I totally agree. There's so much more anonymity. Right. Yeah. So anyway, he moves to Fargo in 2000. He enrolls in a university. He actually makes the dean's honor list. He works a couple jobs. You know, he seems to be rehabilitating. Well, yeah, exactly. So he meets a businessman, and I'm not going to say the guy's name, but it was a real estate developer. They become friends because they both enjoy biking. And so... Is um, that a code for something? <laughs> yeah. As far as I know, it's not. So what happens is Duncan gets arrested in Minnesota. He writes a $15,000 check and then calls this guy who is also a philanthropist and he's a man of means and basically says, hey, can you write me a check to cover my $15,000 bail? I don't want anything to bounce. So he writes a personal check. And what happens is once a warrant for his arrest is issued because he loses contact with his probation officer, detectives in Minnesota subpoena his bank records. So they see this $15,000 check. Uh Yes. And so they question him about it. And he's like, look, I thought he was rehabilitating himself. He seemed like a good guy. He seemed very polite, et cetera, et cetera. I agreed to make him this loan. They also see in Duncan's account a deposit of $6,500 from a check written by a pediatrician. This pediatrician admitted to giving Duncan $6,500 to pay for his defense attorney for the Minnesota charges. Now, this is an exceptionally creepy side note, and I'm not going to say the pediatrician's name, but back up to 1997, Duncan has served time in Washington and he is out on parole. He was alleged to have violated his parole, and the Washington Prison Board was deciding whether or not to put him back in prison. This pediatrician goes to the Washington Prison Board and says, hey, don't violate his parole, just let him come home with me. And the prison board says, um, no, you have children. 
Oh, my God. Yeah. We're not going to allow your children to be exposed to this guy. All we know about how this pediatrician and Duncan intersected is that they met in a San Francisco coffee house. Okay, that's a euphemism. That's all we know. That's why I'm not saying his name. I'm throwing shade at this guy because it's so freaking creepy. But yeah, so in 1997, this pediatrician tries to invite Duncan into his home to live with him and his kids. And then fast forward in 2005, he gives him $6,500 for his defense in the Minnesota case. So I'm totally speculating here, but this was mid-90s. And I know back before the internet made child pornography so accessible to so many of these sick, sick people, I've watched enough true crime to know that there were kind of syndicates of men who... Oh, yeah. Could get in touch with each other, whether it was at coffee houses in San Francisco or wherever. Yeah. And it sounds to me like they had benefactors to help those who were caught doing what they were doing. I didn't read this anywhere. Right. Exactly. This That's is why pure, I said, pure speculation, speculation. As we like to do. As, as we are wont to do. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it just gave me the biggest hebeus jeebus feelings when I read about this guy. I've never heard hebeus jeebus, by the way. I've heard heebie-jeebies, but not hebeus jeebus. Well, that's because it's, you know, it's, it's, it's hebie-jeebie to the nth degree. <laughs> or you're just trying to do Latin along the- with your French. <laughs> so when Duncan is arrested, the police immediately seek a warrant to search his stolen vehicle. So he was in a stolen truck in which he kidnapped the children. And there they found a shotgun, zip ties, and duct tape. In Fargo, North Dakota, officers also secured Duncan's apartment and began searching for evidence. As Kathy mentioned, Shasta was taken to the Kootenai Medical Center, and she remained there for a few days. In a July 3, 2005 newspaper article, so this is one day after Shasta was rescued, Kootenai County Sheriff's Captain Ben Wolfinger said, that their initial information was that Dylan may be deceased, but they were continuing to search for him. Shasta's grateful family was elated that she was found, and they remained hopeful that Dylan would also be found. Shasta spoke at length with investigators when she was rescued and thereafter underwent a series of interviews with the police. In a July 7, 2005 Associated Press article by journalist Nicholas Garanios, Authorities revealed that they believed Duncan was solely responsible for the murders of Mark McKenzie, Brenda Groney, and 13-year-old Slade Groney, as well as the kidnapping of Shasta and Dylan. Authorities confirmed that they also believed Shasta's brother Dylan had died. Captain Wolfinger confirmed that there were remains of a body found in a Montana forest two days after Shasta was rescued, but it would take some time for them to verify the identity of the remains. Wolfinger also said that Duncan's name did not come up at all during their investigation. As time unfolded, law enforcement officers across the country were looking at unsolved abductions and murders regarding children. Authorities confirmed that they were looking at Duncan as a potential suspect in the deaths of six children and two adults in four states, but many believed there were more. So, Kat, those numbers included the Groney family, And when they say many believe there were more, it's because armchair internet sleuths kind of went nuts on this case. People were so invested and so horrified about this case and this poor little girl in particular that they started conducting their own investigations. That's awesome. Yeah. And people were creating maps and timelines. I mean, the FBI was doing this too, but regular people 
were creating maps and timelines and trying to figure out where this guy had been and when he had been there. And then what cases might be outstanding. That's exactly right. That's awesome. Duncan was talking to officers after having waived his Miranda rights. He spoke with detectives about three additional children who were killed during the three years he was paroled during 1994 and 1997 when he was living in Seattle. One boy, 10-year-old Anthony Martinez, was forced into a white car in Beaumont, California, which is in Riverside County in Southern California, in April of 1997 as his friends watched. Sixteen days later, a forest ranger found his nude body 70 miles east from where he disappeared. A few days before Anthony Martinez's disappearance, Duncan was known to be in that area. Duncan also discussed with the investigators the slayings of two half-sisters in the Seattle area. Carmen Kubius was age nine and Sammy Jo White was age 11 when they were kidnapped from the Crest Motel in Seattle in July of 1996. So Shasta called her Samiejo, and that's how she referred to her in an interview that was 10 years after her abduction. But in all the newspaper reports and everything I found, it was Sammy Joe, Sammy Joe, Sammy Joe. And Sammy it was Joe. written as two words. It was written as two words in some and one word in another. So if we are mispronouncing this little girl's name, mea culpa, mea maxima culpa. Carmen and Sammy Joe's skeletal remains were found 17 months later in Bothell, which is a Seattle suburb. Although Duncan's statements were initially characterized as something less than a confession, and there was no physical evidence linking him to those crimes, Washington police continued to investigate him. They were also investigating Duncan for a possible connection to the 1997 abduction slaying of Deborah Palmer. Deborah was seven years old and lived two hours north of Seattle when she disappeared while walking to school. Her body was found on March 31, 1997, the same day Duncan stole his girlfriend's car and disappeared. Duncan made no admissions regarding Deborah's murder and no evidence linking him to the crime was ever reported. Kath, why are so many dogs now suffering from health issues? Actress Katherine Heigl who's helped save over 16,000 dogs through her foundation, said she's seeing more issues with joints, odors, and health than ever before. And after doing a ton of research, she feels there's one place we can look to improve any dog's health, their food. What she discovered is actually the way many dog foods are made can create toxins that could be wrecking our dog's health. And this is true even for many of the premium brands. Fortunately, she found that just by adding a few special superfoods to her dog's food, she saw a huge transformation in their health. She's made a 20-minute video explaining step-by-step step how anyone can do the same thing to see incredible changes in their dog's health. And Kath, as you know, we have a schnauzer named Ollie. And even though my husband insists he is not, he is overly flatulent. <laughs> <laughs> After I started giving him this food, I swear there was a reduction in his smell. I love that. And I'll come over to your house now. <laughs> exactly. Well, and you know, we have a Vishla we call Orange, and she's a senior dog. And over the last couple of weeks, she has actually had more energy to be running around the backyard with the younger dog, the Doberman we call Brown. Or crazy. A little bit. <laughs> so if you want to keep your dog healthy and happy, go to badlandsfood.com slash killer D and watch Catherine's video right now. Again, that's B-A-D-L-A-N-D-S-F-O-O-D dot com slash killer D. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. So what exactly happened at the Grony home on May 16, 2005? The following is a compilation of records from the Court of Appeal as well as Shasta Grony's own account that was detailed in a July 16, 2020 interview from Criminal Perspective podcast, as well as a 2015 interview with Crime Watch Daily. According to Shasta, three days before the kidnapping, she and her brother Dylan, who was only 16 months older than her, were swimming in a small pool in their front yard while their mother was mowing the lawn. Now, I'm assuming it's a blow-up pool, but I don't know for sure. Yeah, I'd assume the same thing. As you indicated earlier, Kath, their home was located close to Interstate 90, and Duncan happened to be driving by and saw the children in their bathing suits. He decided to investigate further. He stalked the house for three days, and the night before the murders, Shasta said he entered the house and watched them sleep. Does she know that because he told her that or because she knew he was there? He told her. That's scary. Uh, terrifying. Shasta said that they lived in the middle of nowhere and the nearest neighbor was a mile away. They left their house unlocked on a regular basis and relied on their pit bull for security. Shasta said that the pit bull was normally very protective. However... Duncan told her he became friendly with the pit bull prior to attempting his crimes. Probably bribing it with food and, and not being aggressive toward him. That's exactly right. So he was able to get the dog to come to him and give her treats so the dog was not a security threat on the night of the murders. According to court records, on May 16, 2005, the defendant drove to the Grony's secluded house intending to kidnap the two children. He came prepared with a loaded sawed-off shotgun, a hammer, night vision goggles, duct tape, and a package of zip ties. He wore a mask, a hat, and gloves. He had surveilled the house, and he knew who was inside. When Shasta was interviewed years later, she said her initial reaction was that he was a police officer because he was dressed in all black. Anyway, so what happens is Duncan entered the house through the unlocked back door and found Brenda asleep in the living room. He woke her up, and at gunpoint, took her to each of the three bedrooms. One by one, he told her to wake up the family members and assemble them in the living room. He ordered them to all lie face down on the living room floor, and he bound their arms and legs with zip ties and duct tape. Duncan then took Shasta and Dylan into the backyard and laid them on the grass near a swing set. He then bludgeoned their mother, Brenda, and her boyfriend, Mark McKenzie, with a hammer. The court records state, that Duncan led 13-year-old Slade into the backyard and hit him on the head with a hammer several times, 
until he fell to the ground and stopped moving. Now, what's interesting is when Shasta started giving interviews 10 years after the fact, she tells a slightly different story. She basically says she thought Slade had escaped and was running away when Duncan hit him twice on the head with the hammer. And he kind of sat down and slumped on this picnic bench. Shasta said Slade was very unsteady and she knew that Duncan left him there to die and that he would soon be dead. Here's the thing. So although the court of appeal case didn't specify where Slade was found, the initial newspaper reports said he was found in the kitchen with his mother. So we do not know if he actually crawled back into the house. I'm not 100% sure that those newspaper reports were correct, but it's just so sad. The whole thing is horrible. Duncan then put Shasta and Dylan in Mark McKenzie's truck. So that was the mother's boyfriend, and his truck was parked out front. And he drove that vehicle to his rental car, which, by the way, was stolen, and then put the kids in that. So if you recall, that night they asked for a search warrant of a truck, and it was this truck. So he transported these kids a very short distance to his stolen rental car. And in Mark McKenzie's truck, there were wads of duct tape. So from Wolf Lodge, Duncan drove his stolen rental car to a secluded area of the Lolo National Forest in Montana, which was about 100 miles away near St. Regis. There he set up camp high up in the mountains. According to court records, Duncan camped for almost seven weeks. Now, Kath, you know, we're not going to get too much into the details. This isn't something that we want to share. It isn't right. something we can stomach. Right. But just suffice it to say that he physically and sexually abused both children repeatedly and made video recordings of some of this abuse. Police later recovered the recordings from what they characterized as a micro drive. In the Criminal Perspective podcast that Kathy referenced earlier, Shasta said that Duncan forced them to drink alcohol and huff chemical cleaners to put them in an altered state. Then Duncan would discuss other murders he had committed. So, Kath, at this point, and what Shasta was referring to, is that he actually confessed to killing the two half-sisters we talked about, Carmen and Sammy Joe. Mm -hmm. And during this time, Shasta was now just pretending to drink the alcohol and huff the chemicals because she said she knew that when she was rescued and he was caught, she wanted to remember these stories in detail so she could tell the police. What a smart little girl. No kidding. At one point, Duncan had the kids write a letter to their dad. Shasta said, Dear Dad, I miss you very much, and me and Dylan know what happened to Mom, Mark, and Slade, and we both feel very sorry for them, and we both miss you and Jesse and Vance, and we might see you guys again. Duncan never mailed this letter, and investigators eventually recovered it. Shasta said that Duncan could be violent and cruel, then at times would cry and say, I can't do this. Clearly, very complex. Exactly. According to court records, on June 22, 2005, Duncan killed Dylan with a shotgun. He did so in front of his sister Shasta. So, Kath, when Shasta was interviewed, she said that Duncan told them to pack up camp, that they were going to go to a lower campsite. She hears a blast. And she looks, and her brother is shot in the stomach. She goes to him. I believe she had her arm on him when Duncan shot him in the head and killed him. Oh, my God. Yes. So he was alive when she ran over there. 
yes, she didn't know what happened. And so Duncan is telling her it was an accident. It was an accident. The shotgun was located on the cooler. I didn't mean to do the first shot. And the second shot was to put him out of his misery. Supposedly, Duncan was crying as he was saying this. So Shasta said she was just in total confusion. I think as we've gone through this, what I keep forgetting is that this little girl is eight Eight. years old. Yep. She has had such presence of mind, such composure under ungodly circumstances. And one of the things she did say was that Duncan was much meaner to her brother than to her. I mean, he was horrible to her. Let's not kid ourselves. But she said that she basically became the older sibling. And she was the one telling her brother, everything's going to be okay. I promise we're going to get back home. Yeah. She was probably able to take on the older sibling role because for whatever reason, Dylan was more of the object of his anger than her. Shasta said that she became completely numb and believed she could not speak for a few days. She said it was almost like she had left her own body. After Dylan was murdered, Duncan did take Shasta to a lower campground. She said she was chained up inside the tent and could see dirt bike riders driving by, but she could not make a sound or he said he would kill her. Shasta described how she pretended to care about Duncan, asking him about his family and trying to build trust. Although there was horrendous abuse, it was obvious to her that he was conflicted and she was trying to get on his good side. At some point after being without Dylan for a couple weeks, Duncan asked Shasta how she wanted to die. Did she want to be strangled or shot? And he mentioned that shooting would put her out of her misery quickly. At that point, Shasta said she accepted death but believed if she chose strangulation, she could try to talk him out of it. Within 10 minutes of the conversation, Duncan laid Shasta on the ground and began strangling her. And Kath, I believed he was using a garret of some type. She started crying and losing consciousness. Then she recalls regaining consciousness and him asking her, what did you say? She said, please don't, Jet. He started crying and let her go. Jet was his nickname and her use of it made him believe she was on his side. Duncan told Shasta he wanted her to meet his mother and his mother would really like her. Shasta agreed and started asking him questions about where he grew up and what was it like. Then she told him she wanted to show him where she grew up. She wanted him to see her school and her best friend's house, and he agreed. Back in the Coeur d'Alene area, she began pointing out buildings. According to the Criminal Perspective podcast, Shasta picked random buildings that held no particular meaning for her. For example, she picked a random house and said it was her best friend's house. Then she pointed at a school that she didn't go to and told him she went there. She starts talking generally about the area where she grows up, and then Duncan says, hey, are you hungry? And this question would prove to be his downfall. He took her to the Denny's at 2 a.m. in Coeur d'Alene that Saturday morning where he was eventually arrested. In August 2005, the state of Idaho charged Joseph Duncan III with three counts of first-degree murder and three counts of first-degree kidnapping for Mark McKenzie, Brenda Groney, and her 13-year-old son, Slade Groney. So, Kath, real quick on the kidnapping charges. Basically, kidnapping requires what we call asportation, and it just means you're taking somebody from someplace against their will. So it could be from a bedroom to a living room. Exactly. 
Duncan pleaded guilty on all charges. The court sentenced him to three consecutive life sentences on the kidnapping charges, but consistent with the terms of his plea bargain, the court deferred sentencing on the murder charges to await the outcome of the federal case. Now, there was going to be a federal case because the kidnapping of the two children and moving them across state lines made it a federal charge rather than a state charge. Right. And they were murdered in Montana. Right. There were a bunch of federal charges. And sometimes state prosecutors want to do their particular crimes and feds want to do something else because federal crimes, federal sentencing sometimes are harsher than state sentences. So federal prosecutors obviously wanted their pound of flesh. State prosecutors wanted their pound of flesh. And so this is how they did it. Idaho retained the right to seek the death penalty on the three murder convictions if other convictions in the federal proceedings did not result in a valid death sentence. Kath, this caused some controversy actually taking a plea agreement and not having a trial. A lot of residents thought that the prosecutor was sort of chickening out, but that really wasn't the case. So the prosecutor, I believe it was a woman, defended herself by saying, hey, look, we saved a million dollars on the prosecution, which money is the worst argument. Right. But what she did point out and which was accurate is that we got him to plead guilty to three murders and three kidnappings and waive his rights to appeal in the state case. And the very least that would happen to him was three life sentences. Right. So he was off the street. That's the very least that would happen right. to them. But they reserved their right to seek the death penalty. If the federal trial did not result in Duncan receiving any death sentences. Exactly. In January of 2007, a federal grand jury in Boise, Idaho, indicted Duncan on 10 counts, all of which were related to the kidnapping, rape, and abuse of Shasta and Dylan Groney and the murder of Dylan. The U.S. Attorney's Office filed a notice of intent to seek the death penalty for the three capital charges. On December 3, 2007, so almost a year later, with the assistance of counsel and without a sentencing deal from the government, Duncan pleaded guilty to all 10 charges in the indictment. So he pleads guilty, but there's no sentencing deal. In other words, they have to now have a penalty phase of the trial, which is, again, it's the best world for a prosecutor because there's a guilty verdict in place. And now we're going to put the horror of his crime on trial and let 12 peers decide what the punishment's going to be. So jury selection for the defendant's penalty phase began April 14, 2008. During the second day of jury selection, the defendant informed the court that he wanted to represent himself. The court held a hearing on the defendant's request, particularly concerning itself with the defendant's competence. After the judge asked the defendant a series of questions, the court directed the parties, so the prosecution and the defense, to confer and submit the names of three local experts who could evaluate the defendant's competence to proceed without counsel. One week later, the court issued an order referring defendant to one of the clinical psychologists whom the parties had jointly recommended. On May 2nd, 2008, defendant's counsel made a motion for an order to find the defendant incompetent. They filed with the court reports from three experts who examined the defendant personally and found him to be incompetent. They basically said, hey, he suffers from delusions and they render him unable to understand the proceedings and also unable to waive his right to counsel intelligently. However, 
after the court-appointed psychologist opined that Duncan was somewhat unusual but understood the nature and consequences of the proceedings and could properly assist in his defense, this expert concluded that he knowingly and intelligently and voluntarily waived his right to counsel. So now the judge has conflicting evidence, so he decides to order a second evaluation at the Metropolitan Detention Center in the Seattle-Tacoma area. The defendant's assessment began on May 23, 2008 and lasted six weeks. The forensic psychologist who was assigned to the case observed Duncan's behavior, reviewed his medical and mental health records, and spoke extensively with the lawyers. She also reviewed the defense experts' reports. Now, for the most part, Kath, Duncan refused to participate in the evaluation, so it consisted of conversations, reviewing records, and observing his behavior. Ultimately, she found no evidence of psychotic behaviors or thought processes. She concluded that he could represent himself competently. Now the defense attorney says, hey, judge, wait a second. We should have a whole hearing on this. We should call witnesses to testify. And the judge says, nope. And he denied the defense's motion for a full competency hearing, and he allowed Duncan to proceed on the penalty phase, acting as his own attorney. However, standby counsel was also present. And standby counsel is exactly what it sounds like. It's a real attorney sitting there, hopefully advising the person who's representing themselves. And hopefully the person representing themselves is listening to what the standby counsel is saying. Exactly. On August 13, 2008, the penalty phase hearing began, and it took 10 days for the government to present its evidence. According to Channel 4 News Now, on August 22, 2008, Shasta's father, Steve Groney, got angry and aggressive during a court recess. So, Kath, what happens is Judge Lodge warns everyone that they were about to play a very graphic video after the court recess. So Steve Groney goes nuts. He starts yelling at people in the courthouse hallway that he did not want any non-essential people in the courtroom. According to the article, he made a graphic gesture warning people not to go in. So I don't know if it was like a finger across the throat, a fist, a middle finger. I don't know. But he was flipping out. He was super angry and upset at the idea of people going in and watching what he knew they were going to see. So... Is the assumption that these were the videos that Duncan had taken of his abuse of Shasta and Dylan after he kidnapped them? That is my assumption. However, I didn't specifically read that. What I did read is that they were going to see videos of the police interview of Shasta. So anyway, he is yelling at spectators and he demands that the windows in the courtroom be covered. And they were. Good. They're like, yes, sir, Mr. Groney. So What was kind of cool about this is that people paid attention to him. They need to, though, because it's just, it's purient. It's gross. Yeah, exactly. So many people stayed outside of the courtroom because he was the suffering father. For those that didn't, he wanted the names of every person in the courtroom who were non-essential people, and he wanted them to be arrested for viewing child pornography. And he was willing to make a citizen's arrest. I love his protective nature of his kids. He was fiercely protective of his daughter. So the jury saw a series of videos beginning with Shasta's interview at Kootenai Hospital, where she was wrapped in a blanket and holding a teddy bear. In the defense case, 
Duncan only called himself as a witness and did not make a statement in his defense. As a result, the prosecutors did not cross-examine him. The jury unanimously recommended death sentences on all three capital counts. Judge Lodge imposed the three death sentences, and on November 13, 2008, he also imposed other non-capital sentences for federal crimes committed, including sexual assault of a child. At the federal sentencing, U.S. Attorney Rafael Gonzalez Jr. said, quote, This crime was horrendous, and its impact on the families, the community, the jurors, court staff, our litigation team, and law enforcement were far-reaching. While his death will not bring back the lives cut so tragically short, nor remove the indelible memories of his unspeakable acts, perhaps death row will now allow a space for some degree of healing, peace, and closure. End quote. Duncan's standby counsel filed an appeal. After that, Duncan wrote the judge a letter saying, This is to inform the court that if any appeal is initiated on my behalf, it is done contrary to my wishes. The Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals actually agreed to hear the appeal with its primary issue being whether the defendant could competently represent himself and waive his right to appeal. The Ninth Circuit Court of Appeal ordered the trial court to have a full competency hearing to determine whether the defendant competently waived his rights to appeal. If the court determined he competently waived his rights to appeal, then the appeal would be struck and the death sentence reinstated. If the defendant did not competently waive his right to appeal, the court would need to determine whether the defendant competently waived his right to counsel during the penalty phase. If the defendant did not competently waive his right to counsel, the sentence of death would be vacated and there would be a new penalty phase hearing. In early 2013, Judge Lodge held a 23-day competency hearing and almost a year later in December, issued a detailed order finding Duncan had been competent to waive his right to appeal. Now, Kath, I did not read this document, but I read somewhere that his ruling was 60 pages long. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if that's 100% accurate because I didn't see it. But a 23-day competency hearing, I could see it. Oh, yeah. The Ninth Circuit affirmed the court's findings, and the United States Supreme Court declined to hear the appeal. The sentence of death remained in place. Following his conviction, Duncan was extradited to California to be tried for the 1997 murder of 10-year-old Anthony Martinez in Riverside County. Turns out that detectives in that case had a partial fingerprint of Duncan's that was on a piece of duct tape found on the victim's body. Good for them. Exactly. So in California, Duncan pleaded guilty and received a life sentence. Anthony's mother, Diana, was interviewed and said, the sun is brighter today and my soul is lighter. So even though he was given a death sentence in Idaho, I like that California prosecuted this guy. And obviously the mom needed it too. Yeah. When Duncan was initially arrested, he made statements regarding Sammy Jo White and her half-sister, Carmen Kubius. However, they were not taken as true admissions. It was reported later, however, that Duncan confessed to beating the two girls to death. He was not prosecuted because he was already facing multiple death sentences. Although his attorneys continued with their efforts to set aside his death sentence, on Sunday, March 28, 2021, Duncan died on death row as a result of brain cancer. 
He had been in custody on death row in the Federal Correctional Institute in Terre Haute, Indiana. According to Associated Press journalist Nicholas Garanios, Shasta Groni, now in her mid-20s, issued a written statement following Duncan's death. For so long, I have been struggling with hate towards that man. Today, I woke up feeling like my soul was finally free. I hope other people affected by Joseph Duncan were able to wake up feeling the same way. Shasta Groni is a survivor and an inspiration. And we decided to do this podcast because she's recently been speaking out again. In fact, her last interview was in June of 2022 with People Magazine. Right. Immediately following her abduction, Shasta talks about how the community and law enforcement in particular rallied around her. A trust was actually established to aid in Shasta's support, making sure she was stably housed until her adulthood. In one interview... Shasta said she became close with many in law enforcement immediately after her rescue. There were officers who befriended her and allowed her to come play with their kids and spend the night. There was one female officer in particular who was still friends with Shasta when she was being interviewed 10 years later. I love that. Exactly. It was on the 10th anniversary of her kidnapping that Shasta began speaking out and giving interviews Although federal jurors during the penalty phase of the trial watched a series of interviews and videos regarding Shasta and what she went through, Mm -hmm. most people did not know the details. Until she gave these interviews. Exactly. So, Cap, at the 10-year mark, Shasta is actually pregnant with her first son. She considered her son to be a miracle child because she was told it would be impossible for her to have children. Wow. So when I look back and I was watching these interviews of her, I was so struck by her, oh gosh, I don't know, her perspective, her wisdom. Her poise. Yes, exactly. Her most recent interview with People Magazine revealed that Shasta now has four children and a fifth on the way. That's awesome. Yeah. Back when Shasta was interviewed by Crime Watch Daily in 2015, she said that Elizabeth Smart was an inspiration to her. They suffered many parallel experiences, and like Elizabeth Smart, Shasta Groni's story is one of survival and hope. Well, and as you can imagine, Shasta's life was not a walk in the park after such extreme trauma. And it's amazing. She had so much community support, law enforcement support. She had her dad and her older brothers, but she also went through a lot of therapy, and she grew very weary of everybody knowing her as the girl who was kidnapped. Totally. And she actually said that she developed an eating disorder and drug addiction, which all caused her to struggle for many, many years. Mm -hmm. So although her relationship with her father became strained during her adolescence, he was a constant in her life up until his death from cancer in 2019. Just as an aside, what really pisses me off about reading this is that the man who did this to her lived two years longer than her father did. I thought the same thing. Shasta said she loved her dad very much and was quoted as saying her father was her hero. Through all the legal machinations, he did not miss a single court hearing. In the 2015 interview for Crime Watch Daily that we've already talked about, Shasta's own words exemplified the type of person she is. At some point in my life, I had to come to the conclusion that if I don't forgive him, then he's going to control my life in some way or another. He's always going to be in my thoughts. I still have the intention of facing him again and telling him this is what you did to my family and this is how I feel about it. 
Also, I want him to know I'm doing good things with my life so he knows that he does not control me, so that he knows he does not control my life, and that he does not affect me anymore. We want to thank you so much for listening. We really have a fun time recording this podcast. And the minute we don't, we're going to stop. <laughs> but we also appreciate all the messages we're getting we from totally listeners do. who tell us how much they like it and how much it reminds them of how they are with their friends. Exactly. And so please just share this with your friends. And that helps us out a lot. Absolutely. And if you're not following us on Facebook or Instagram, we are at Killer Destinations Podcast on both of them. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.